Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. I graduated and trained in Britain and after a number of years was recruited to the United States where I started my career at the amazing and world-famous Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, a place that has been close to my heart. A while back, one of my buddies at Cedars asked if I would chat to a surgeon in their ranks who was at a career inflection point, and from there on, I got to know Dr. Monica Jane. She serves as Assistant Professor of Surgery in the Division of Minimally Invasive, Gastrointestinal, and Endocrine Surgery, and is also the Surgical Innovation Officer. Monica also serves as a venture partner with a group called Wavemaker 360 Health and enjoys both strings to her bow. Monica was educated at Boston University School of Medicine, where she obtained her bachelor's in biomedical engineering and then her medical degree. She completed her general surgery residency at Cedars and an endocrine surgery fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco Medical Center, where she then became a clinical instructor and obtained her board certification in surgery before moving back to Los Angeles. She is a member of multiple medical professional societies, including the Association for Academic Surgery, the AMA, and the Society of Surgical Ergonomics, a link, I believe, to her early education in biomedical engineering. Dr. Jane has held many leadership roles in education and clinical practice, among others. You get the picture. She is one busy lady. In addition to conducting research, Monica has made multiple presentations and publications and is a reviewer for journals. She's received many grants and multiple awards, including being named Woman of the Year twice by an American publication, the India New England Newspaper, and the award named for a gentleman who I admired and greatly liked, the late Dr. Leon Morgenstern Great Debates in Clinical Medicine Resident Competition at Cedars-Sinai, also receiving the Leo G. Rigler Award for Outstanding House Officer at Cedars. Simply put, Dr. Monica Jane is a superstar. Outside of her outstanding academic prowess, Monica was on a competitive Bollywood fusion dance team in college, I'm a huge fan of Bollywood movies. I find them utterly joyous. And I'm also overjoyed to welcome Dr. Monica Jane to the EMJ podcast. Hi, Jonathan. I'm very happy to be here. Well, we're thrilled you are. And um, we'll have to have a, a separate conversation about Bollywood. What I love about those movies is just people suddenly burst into song. It's fantastic. Dancing to Bollywood music is just as lively and exciting as the movies. Oh, wonderful. Well, from my perspective, I'm impressed with anyone who can make more than three dance steps without falling over, which is which is me. So, Monica, let's start at the beginning. How did you get into medicine and what made you want to be a surgeon, your specific specialty, and then to take on leadership roles? So I uh, came from a family of engineers, and I always was drawn to the field of engineering. It was probably in my genes, and explored many different fields in engineering and fell in love with biomedical engineering. And that was probably my first foray into the medical field and feeling that medicine was truly the field for me. 
Um, when I was a biomedical engineering undergraduate student at Boston University, I started working in a vascular surgery research lab under a very famous vascular surgeon named Frank Legerfo. And Dr. Legerfo took me under his wing and uh, mentored me and really drew me into the field of medicine and specifically surgery. And after exploring those areas, I knew that I could never be anything but a surgeon. So I uh, finished, I moved from engineering into medical school and then went to residency in surgery at Cedars-Sinai. And there I was taken under the mentorship of a general surgeon who focused on thyroid and parathyroid surgery. And again, at that time, um, was drawn in by his mentorship and decided to become an endocrine surgeon. Throughout all of my career, I'd been really interested in bridging the gap between engineering and physicians and incorporating engineering into my daily practice um, because that was still in my heart and soul. And that's where I really began incorporating innovation into my career and taking on leadership roles to really push that forward. Well, I think um, I can speak for everyone who knows you that we're very pleased that you did joy to watch your career trajectory. Monica, I'd love to talk to you about a piece of work that you did, the Jane Way of Life Handbook, a guide to compassion, healthy and happy living, which was published by the Jane Associations of North America. I'm assuming this refers to Jainism and the philosophy imbued within rather than your surname. Can, can you um, enlighten me, please? Of course, yes. So my surname is Jane, but I am also of the Jane religion, um, which is a religion that really believes in nonviolence and compassion. And so this book was part of a series to try to bring in the newer generation and help them understand Jainism um, and bring Jainism into the 21st century. So really understanding how we can apply the principles of nonviolence living in a modern America. Well, I think it would be fair to say that we could all do with a little bit of that um, in this current environment. So I mentioned that you serve as Surgical Innovation Officer at CEDARS. Explain to us what the role involves. It's, it's quite a new thing across the globe. And although the majority of our listeners are medics, um, there are some who are not. So they might not know what a, an SIO, a Surgical Innovation Officer, does. Absolutely. So my main goal is to advance the culture of innovation at our institution. Now, this takes on many different uh, aspects, and it's different at every institution depending on their inherent culture. At Cedars-Sinai, I work on um, developing new technologies that solve uh, some of the problems that we see in our clinical practice. I also um, have collaborations with engineers, bringing in my passion to bring engineers and physicians together to develop new healthcare innovations. I do some education work to teach physicians and residents and medical students about innovation, um, what the innovation process looks like, how to navigate the FDA, and many other aspects of commercialization and in general, um, support any innovative activities at the institution. Many years ago in the UK, there was a wonderful publication, which was all about, uh, it was a government think tank. The final assumption was that uh, promulgating innovation in medicine has multiple benefits. It doesn't just help the people it helps, but the fact that you create these industries, they tend to have very high paying jobs, 
So you're raising the wealth of the nation. And by raising the wealth, we know you raise the health. So there's this virtuous circle. So I think it's a marvelous, marvelous development. So since qualifying, Monica, you've consulted for a number of companies and been a mentor, coach, judge across a, a range of startup activities. What attracted you to doing that? And was that, if you will, a foreshadowing of you joining a venture firm? It was absolutely a foreshadowing, and I never had thought about venture before experiencing those activities. But what brought me into that is that I inherently am not a creative person. I'm not the kind of person who will make that disruptive innovation. And I think better in terms of strategy and understanding how different pieces play together. And so bringing my expertise uh, in medicine to engineers and bringing my engineering expertise to physicians uh, was really the place that I could help all of these different parties further their innovations. And so that's why I love um, doing these pitch competitions, mentoring, especially early stage startup companies, helping them understand where they fit in the general healthcare in ecosystem. And uh, that's really where my strengths and my passions lie. There's a particular aspect of uh, innovation and start the startup mentality that I want to approach. I was recently talking to a very brilliant entrepreneur here in uh, London, and she was telling me that a very small percentage of money was invested in female-led businesses. And I said, so is the assumption that people are deliberately not investing in women, or is it that just women aren't starting businesses? Uh, there could be many, many reasons for it. And, you know, this woman is utterly brilliant at what she does and is not having any problems raising money. So I guess a follow-on question from what we've already discussed. You're a member of the Society of Women Engineers, the Association of Women Surgeons, where you've been involved in a coaching project. You've judged at Women in Tech pitch events. You've written a blog entitled Achieving Diversity Through Inclusive Leadership. Can you talk to us about the barriers that do face female entrepreneurs and what can be done to dismantle them? Maybe I'd like to think I'm enlightened, but maybe I'm just foolish and that there are barriers. There are a number of barriers, actually. It's a difficult place to be. There's a lack of support for women entrepreneurs, women engineers, women surgeons. And in general, the industry was developed to support men. And so when it comes to supporting women who are innovators in the healthcare industry, um, I think it's very important to provide them the same opportunities, same mentorship, and uh, same support um, that may come that may be easier to get if you are male. Um, so some of the examples of that uh, do include funding and specific funding events for women that uh, focus on the earlier stage because women, especially at the pre-seed level, have a lot more difficulty with uh, getting their ideas and businesses off of the ground. So at the pre-seed level, especially providing mentorship and funding helps those businesses launch, and then they have a much easier time moving forward. And so I do believe that there are a lot of women innovators out there who want to develop something, but that initial hill is too large to overcome. And that's why we don't see a lot of women-led businesses in the early stage startups and even in the later stage startups. And so that's why I focus a lot of my work on supporting women at the very early stages, especially. So 
what can be done? I mean, I, you know, I've had the privilege to be involved in many startups and I've worked with, again, I'd like to think that I'm enlightened. I've never certainly looked at, you know, a board appointment, whether they're male or female or, or an executive appointment or a funding situation. Maybe, again, I'm blinkered, but what can be done to change perceptions? I think the very first step is that especially for innovations that focus on women, that women should be involved in the board, the advisory committee, the leadership of the uh, startup. That's the most important thing. It's embarrassing really to tell you how many startups I see that focus on women and improving health for women. And there is not a single woman in that company. And um, I think that's one way that we can focus on improving women's health and women's involvement and in innovation. And the second thing is what I already mentioned, which is bringing some more resources to women at the very early stages. So maybe that means women in tech pitch events focusing on the pre-seed stage. Maybe that's uh, hackathons for women, you know, things that really support the very early stages in order to help them move forward and um, really be able to develop what they want to develop. I'm sorry to harp on about this, but I, it, it's clearly very, very important. Look, I fly aeroplanes and I have given multiple talks at universities and colleges and schools telling people about the joys of flying aeroplanes. A tiny percentage of pilots are women. There is nothing stopping women learning to fly or getting jobs. I don't know about getting jobs with the airlines, but there are many jobs in aviation. I finally came to the conclusion it's because you can't generalize, but that they weren't interested uh, in the topic. Those who were went ahead and did it. My daughter was very interested in aviation and became an aviation an aeronautical engineer with NASA, of which I'm enormously proud. Is it that there's a lack of role models? So there is definitely a lack of role models, and that is historically what the industry has bred. But role models are one step of it. The other big step involves uh, work-life balance and providing more support for women who in general, again, not trying to generalize, but in general, take on a significant number of the roles related to uh, taking care of family. And so providing support for women in that way, which I think the um, UK and Europe do a better job of than the United States, that will help allowing women to go into these more demanding fields. Um, as an example, providing more care for children at home or providing caregivers, um, including more maternity leave, things like that would allow women to then return to work and be ready to take on a demanding job that may have longer hours, which they may not traditionally or historically been able to take on. Well, I think I would say that if they were like you, there'd be a lot more females going into surgery and going into the entrepreneurial vein. Keep it up. So let's move on. I know that you're interested in human-centered design and innovation and quality and performance improvement. And I mentioned your first degree in biomedical engineering. Talk us through these principles and maybe provide some examples. 
Absolutely. So um, engineering uh, definitely involves innovations in technology. And what I experienced when I was an engineer is that engineers are brilliant and they will develop the coolest things that you could possibly think of. And then they try to push that out into the world, whether it's in biomedical engineering, whether it's in a different field, they will push that out into the world without doing a lot of um, customer discovery. And so this technology will end up in the hands of a physician or a surgeon. And for them, it doesn't fit into their workflow. It may be the best thing since sliced bread, but if they can't figure out how to use it, the design isn't intuitive. If um, it doesn't fit into how a surgeon operates um, and is easily usable, they're not going to use it. And so the patients then lack from that application of those new technologies. And so it's very important to focus on human-centered design, understand the users that you are innovating for, and design your products such that they are very easy to use and understandable and fit into the workflow. Um, so I focus a lot of my mentorship actually on adoption and understanding the implementation of new innovations and new technologies, in addition to the other areas that I mentor startups in. My experience of innovation has been that it's best played as a team sport. Anything that I've dreamed up as, as a surgeon, I'm coming at it from a surgeon's perspective, the concept of informed innovation working with engineers and others, they've always, always, always improved my, my dopey ideas. What are your thoughts about engaging experts early in the commercialization process? Jonathan, that is exactly my mantra to every startup that I talk to, engage the experts early. There are immense benefits to be gained from engaging any expert in any area that is important in the innovation and commercialization process. Um, I'll give you a few examples. One is, um, again, focusing back on human-centered design and designing your product with the end user in mind. If you get to a design freeze and then take your product out to the experts and they say that I would never use this because of this, this, or that, then you have to go back to the drawing board sometimes and you've lost a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of resources. Another example is um, engaging FDA experts early to understand what the FDA or other regulatory bodies want to see when it comes to the studies that would allow them to approve your product. And if you don't do those studies in the manner that they see fit, then again, you're going back and you're redoing those studies and you're losing a lot of time and money. And so I think that it's very important to the commercialization process to engage the experts as early as possible so that you can frame your commercialization process appropriately. Yeah, I mean, I would also throw in that other experts should be like people on, on reimbursement. Very important in the United States. I've seen products, brilliant, fantastic, great intellectual property portfolio. You know, they've got fantastic scientific data. They get regulatory clearance, but there's a flaw in the business model and no one's going to use it. And that's, you know, that's an issue which people need to understand. So I, I'm, I'm delighted to hear you say that. So I've already said uh, that 
you've been a consultant to companies and, you know, you've worked in, I guess, vertically integrated fashion from ideation to clinical practice. You're now an investment professional for a venture capital firm, as well as still practicing surgery. There are two related topics that make my teeth itch. And I'm keen to hear your take on conflicts of interest and entrepreneurship and innovation in the clinical environment. I know you're heavily engaged in this area. In fact, you co-authored an article with our mutual friend, uh, Bruce Gewertz, entitled The Shared Investment Model, Partnering a Venture Capital Fund with a Health System. Monica, the floor is yours. I am very happy to talk about conflicts of interest. As I mentioned, I think it's very important for startups to engage experts early and throughout the commercialization process. And so in inherently, this means that you have to engage physicians early in the process. And sometimes this may believe, be believed to be a conflict of interest. Um, but I think that major way to counteract this is to have management plans in place. And management plans for conflicts of interest can be very complex, but inherently they involve limiting the involvement of um, certain parties in studies so that there is no bias, but also allowing them to still guide the study and run the study in the way that would allow that product to move forward. And so it's a understanding of the balance between the involvement of appropriate parties and limiting how much they are involved. And I think that everything can be managed with a good management plan and that it is not a black and white yes or no answer. There is a lot of gray area there and always acting with the best interest, ensuring that you have um, appropriate oversight, ethical committees who are monitoring all of this. I think that it's very easy to navigate through as long as you have the appropriate insight and involvement. Now, I wrote an article about this years ago, donkey's years ago, called The Baby and the Bathwater. You know, don't throw one out in the other. It makes an assumption of guilt. And certainly in the United States, presumption of innocence is a foundation of the law in theory. But, you know, you think about it as paid for a healthcare system like the United States. A surgeon gets paid for doing an operation. Well, one might say, well, hang on a second, that's a conflict of interest. You're telling someone they're sick and they need an operation and you're getting paid for it? That's a conflict. I would never operate on someone who didn't need an operation. I think a lot of it is reactionary and it's driven by politics rather than by intellect. I encourage anyone listening in not to react to the gainsaying and to think through this topic, which I think Monica has outlined very, very clearly and sensibly. So I came across an interesting article in your uh, CV entitled Personal Communication Devices Among Surgeons, Exploring the Empowerment Enslavement Paradox. It was published, I think, just in the last couple of years. Can you talk to us about this? Definitely. It's a very interesting study that my human factors colleague, Dr. Tara Cohen, and I did under the mentorship of Bruce Gewertz. And it talks about the modern healthcare environment in which everyone has a cell phone and everyone has a cell phone 24-7. So previously we had pagers and we were able to turn those pagers off or hand off the pager to someone else for coverage. But now everyone has cell phones, everyone has my cell phone number, and there is no point in time where 
truly I am unreachable because someone can call my cell phone at any time. However, that really encroaches on our work-life balance and our ability to take good care of our patients um, in the appropriate manner. What we looked at is um, understanding how beneficial cell phones have been to healthcare as a whole, and then understanding how to balance that with turning your cell phone off or making unavailable times so that providers don't get burned out and that patients can be appropriately cared for. And really, again, as everything else in life, it's always a balance. And there need to be appropriate plans set into place where there are handoffs and um, your phone is off or your work cell phone is deactivated or passed off to someone else so that you can focus on your home life, come back to work the next day and be able to take good care of your patients and not feel totally burned out, which is a huge problem these days in the healthcare industry, as you know. I would also throw out there, I I forget which American leader it was said this, that when you receive an abusive letter, you should write one back, giving the same and more to the person who wrote to you. But then you should put both letters on your mantelpiece and you should leave them there for a week and then throw both away. The problem with today's personal devices is it's easy to say something immediately without thinking through the consequences. There's no time for thought. There's no time for compassion. So I've got to, I've got to get hold of that study. And I've, I've met your colleague um, at Cedars, very, very smart lady. My final question. If you had three wishes to improve global health, what would they be? Well, number one, I think if we could expand health literacy to every person on the globe and have them understand their health situation in good times and in bad, I think that would make a big difference in terms of the overall health of our entire population. So number one is health literacy. Number two is access to resources, especially in resource limited areas. Now you can take that many different ways, but what I think about is third world countries, rural areas where uh, people don't currently, but I wish that they did, have access to the experts in the world because every single person should be treated with that a one first class care that people in big cities and uh, at big medical centers with good insurance can get. And so access to the world-class care and in resource limited areas, that's number two. And number three is my favorite, unlimited money to fund unlimited numbers of companies because it is so much fun to see companies grow and develop and expand and advance the way that we practice medicine. Absolutely it is. And as I said before, um, as a new company starts and it employs people, it's very gratifying to know that you've improved the health, um, which is more than just the absence of disease. You've improved the health of all the people that company will employ. So Dr. Monica Jane, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us, for the enthusiasm and agile mind that you display and everything that you're doing for patients and bringing new therapies to the patient's that these new companies can help. Thank you so much, Jonathan. The pleasure has been mine and our friendship has been truly astounding. you're, You're a delight. Well, folks, sadly, that's all we have time for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode and will subscribe for our weekly shows. 
Tell your friends and like us on social media. Until our next EMJ podcast every Friday, this is your host, Jonathan Sakia. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.